Prepare our hearts, O God, to hear your word and obey your will. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The psalm reading today is from Psalm 133. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard and on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has condemned, commanded the blessing, life, bless, life forevermore. And the gospel reading is John 20, 19, 30-31. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord Jesus and said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus appeared. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark for the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Easter was a week ago. The chocolate bunnies have long since lost their ears. Leftover ham sandwiches or soup have been eaten, I hope. The brightly colored hard-boiled eggs aren't quite old enough for a sniff check yet, but they are starting to lose that fresh texture. And the clearance candy aisle at CVS is a wonderland of cheap, empty calories. Easter, says the world, is over. So how did Easter change your life? Really, how did Easter change your life? 
Or is it just the same as it was before Easter Sunday? It is still actually Easter. We have these six full weeks of Easter in the church year because it's too important to be just one fleeting Sunday full of flowers and pretty dresses. One week can come and go with very little impact on our lives, especially when the rest of the world has glommed on to the opportunity to celebrate, or rather to market and sell. But six weeks, that's a significant time commitment. Six weeks of focus just after Lent, which is about six weeks long. While Easter is a bright and beautiful explosion of joy, after a long and difficult six-week journey through Lent, our journey is not finished. It has simply changed direction. Easter Sunday is the hinge between two very special and very important seasons in the rhythm of the church year. We spend six weeks in Lent working to move closer and closer to God, moving inward, moving upward. And now we have six weeks to take what we have learned about God and ourselves and to focus outward, carrying the gospel out into the world. So every year on the first Sunday after Easter, we read this passage from John in which the disciples are locked in a room keeping the gospel to themselves. And one of the gospel's most infamous characters makes his big appearance this Sunday every year, Doubting Thomas. It is a really crummy nickname. If you think about it, we don't have brash, mouthy Peter. We don't have betraying Judas. He's just Judas Iscariot, just his name. But poor Thomas has one thing and gets this nickname, Doubting Thomas. Not just a nickname, but he becomes a thing to call other people. It is totally unfair for him to get stuck with this name. On the one hand, it is comforting for all of us to think that one of the disciples might have doubted Jesus and the power of the resurrection, because most of us doubt it in some form at some point in our lives. And it's convenient to have a specific person to point to and say, see, even one of the first apostles doubted. But Thomas being a doubter is not the point of this passage. The scripture doesn't call him Doubting Thomas anywhere in the original text. That is a title given to him by early church leaders. It wasn't even given to him by Jesus or the other Disciples. If you ever see the words Doubting Thomas in the text, it's probably going to come right at the beginning of this section as the title of the section of Scripture, and that's not in the original Scripture. Thomas is not asking for anything more than the others, including the women, had. He just needs to see the Lord in the same way that the rest of the disciples have seen him. And he doesn't need this proof because he wants some kind of equal treatment with the other disciples. It's not a jealousy issue. He hasn't seen in them 
living a way that suggests anything has changed since Jesus died on the cross. It's not that he doesn't believe Jesus. He doesn't believe the other disciples because they haven't changed yet. They aren't showing any evidence of the resurrection's effect on their lives. The Spirit has been breathed out onto them by Jesus himself, and yet they haven't changed. They are still sitting, locked away, scared. I wouldn't believe those guys either, and neither would anyone else. Why should they? Well, the disciples are still terrified, and that's human. It is not an unreasonable reaction to the events that have happened over the past week or two to be afraid. Scripture says that they're scared of the Jewish authorities. Now, if you want some more information on the misuse of that particular phrase as it's been translated through the years, I do have some more information in the handouts and the manuscripts on your way out today. They weren't afraid of Jews in general. They were Jews. Remember, they were afraid of the particular Jews who were in charge at the time. And that is because they were actually in mortal peril. So it's not that their fear of going outside that locked door is invalid. It's not that the fear isn't real. It's just that Jesus' call to do God's work in the world is infinitely more important than saving our own skins or reputations or energy. Jesus knows that they are scared. So his first order of business is to say, peace be with you. And immediately they're glad to see him. I mean, who wouldn't be? The women were right. Jesus was back. Jesus comes back into their midst to reestablish their shalom, their sense of peace and well-being, to help alleviate the fear. And he says that their mission, in turn, is to help restore the shalom to the rest of the world as well. And this is, in many ways, the beginning of Pentecost. As we travel through the season from Easter to Pentecost, this is where it begins. Jesus is using the language of peace again. He's been using it a lot in the Gospel of John. He's recalling to the disciples the promises he made before he died. It's a very pastoral tone. He's very gentle and kind with them. It's a peaceful tone to settle down these poor, frightened disciples. And it works right up until he disappears from their midst again. As soon as they aren't in his physical presence anymore, they go back to staying behind their locked doors. They retreat to their safe place, showing no evidence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. As far as Thomas is concerned, Easter hasn't happened, because surely if it had, it would have mattered enough to change these guys. So I propose we stop calling him Doubting Thomas, and we start calling him Practical Thomas, or All of Us Thomas. This is why we have prayers of confession every week, to remind us of our need for constant renewal and restoration. This is why we share peace with one another every week, to remind us of our need to continually work for restoration in our relationships with one another. These parts of our liturgy are like having Thomas show up and say, I don't see any evidence of that. They force us 
to look at what a difference Easter really makes in our lives and to keep us moving forward? Are we living post-resurrection lives that turn the powers of the world on their heads and actually make a difference in our communities? Or are we locked in our safe rooms, talking amongst ourselves, and maybe telling one or two trusted friends about Jesus? People do not stop coming to or avoid church because they don't know God at work when they see God at work. They stop coming because they don't see God doing anything through the church. This passage links the resurrection with our call to be missionaries in the world. He is risen. Peace be with you. Go and tell all people. Go and change the world. Go be bold and different and topple tables over if necessary, just like Jesus did. So how can we be the community and be witnesses to the resurrection to the rest of the world around us? Where do people need shalom? One church I heard of recently nailed it. They sold their unwieldy building. They had a huge, sprawling building that took up, I don't know, like a couple of blocks, I think it said, in a neighborhood where people didn't have anywhere to live. The neighborhood was gentrifying, and they were running out of affordable housing for the people around them. So they sold their building and let it be torn down so that they could make space for more affordable housing. And in the plan, they put a smaller sanctuary that met their needs better that was right in the midst of this affordable housing plan. The rental costs were significantly lower for them to rent that space back from the, I believe it was the city that they sold it to. Um, I attached the article to the sermon, so you can uh, check my <laughs> check my facts here. Um, but the rental costs were significantly lower than the building upkeep had been, and they were able to successfully fill a huge need in their community, a place where people were lacking shalom, wholeness, wellness in their lives. And friends, we're on our way. There has been some great exploration happening here. We've got some special events coming up. We've had some recently. And so I encourage you to explore how do we keep that momentum building how do we keep working to bring the gospel, not just the words of the gospel, but the actions of the gospel to our community? Where does this community lack shalom? And how can we be a part of that process of bringing wholeness to those around us? How do we make sure that we are, the living, that we are living the resurrection story? That we are living the evidence of resurrection, not just staying behind closed doors. When and where people are hurting, this should be the first place they think to look for shalom. So let's be different, and let's stand for something, for resurrection. Amen.